Welcome to the First NAS Podcast. Pastor Paul continues his Big Questions That Need Answer series today with the question, uh, how does a good God let bad things happen? Let's listen in as he teaches on this big question. As, uh, you're getting settled and getting ready. I'm, I'm at some point going to get to John chapter 11 this morning. But as you're, as you're getting your Bible ready for this morning, let me just remind you of a couple of announcements I like to make every week. Well, one announcement I like to make every week, and that is that I pray with anybody who would like to pray at uh, 6 a.m. on Thursday mornings via Zoom. And so if you're interested in being a part of that prayer time on 6 a.m. on Thursday mornings, text the word prayer to the number on the screen and you will receive the invite to that prayer time uh, on time to, to join. And then I just remind you, uh, Becky mentioned that our Ash Wednesday service is coming up on February 14th, Wednesday. That's not this coming Wednesday. It's the Wednesday after. And so we'll be gathering in here after, after a special Valentine's dinner. We'll be gathering in here for a uh, time of interactive worship together. And we will, we will have some stations around the building that will help kind of center our minds and, and thoughts and prayer as we head into the season of Lent. During Lent is a traditional season of fasting for the church, and so I just encourage you now as the, we have 10 days until Lent begins, I'd encourage you to consider how you will use that period to connect with the Lord and how you will, how you will mark the season of Lent in preparation for Easter. And as we gather at the end of March for, for Easter, we want your, your heart to be ready and, and to be, be prepared for a great day of celebration. So just encourage you to consider how you might use the Lenten season, how you might fast, how you might, what practices you might take on during the season of Lent. We will provide uh, next week a reader through the Gospels, through uh, the Gospel of John, and so that will be coming, and, and as a congregation, I'll invite you to read through the Gospel of John with me during the season of Lent. I'll be preaching from a few chapters in the Gospel of John, so it'll kind of go along with, with what I'm doing, kind of, just kind of. So this winter, I've been trying to ask some important questions. I've been trying to ask questions that maybe we don't always ask as a church. I, I ask the question, does God exist which kind of seems like an out-of-bounds question for a Sunday morning in church, but I asked it because I'm never afraid of asking impertinent questions, and so I, I thought we should talk about that. And I asked, does God love us? And I, I asked, am I living the life that God wants? And, and I asked the question last week, is Christianity the only way to God? And I'm not, uh, I'm not convinced that I've given any satisfactory answers during the whole course of the month of January, and I'm going to start February off the same way, not giving satisfactory answers, because some of these questions, they just don't have, they don't have satisfactory answers. The reason that I'm addressing these hard questions is just to, to remind us as a community that we, we don't have all the answers. As Christians, we, we aren't people, being a Christian doesn't mean 100% certainty in everything that we face. 
being a Christian doesn't mean that we, we always have all of the answers. And there are things that we can be sure about in Christianity, I believe. I believe we can be very sure as we read Scripture about God's love for us. I believe we can be very sure that Jesus is the best illustration and example of God that we could possibly have experienced. And Jesus came right to this earth to show us what God is like. I believe that we can know by the power of the Spirit at work in us. Like the, the Bible tells us, the Spirit can tell our spirit that we are children of God. I believe that we can know that we are in a relationship with God by the Spirit working in us. That doesn't mean that we always have 100% clarity on everything. It doesn't mean that we always understand perfectly all the things about our faith. And, and so, this inevitable lack of clarity that we have, people do different things with it. You know, it hits people differently. Some people think, well, if I can't know all the answers to all the questions, I can't be a believer in God. They they abandon their faith or they, they choose not to have faith in God because they can't answer all the questions in a satisfactory way. Some people choose to, to say my faith is strengthened because I'm serving a God I don't fully understand, and, and I, I would have less faith in a God that I could completely explain. And today's question is a question that, like, very few people have much certainty on. And honestly, people who have a lot of certainty on the question I'm asking today kind of frustratingly cling to answers that that often we look at and we say, well, there's some problems with those answers. And so historically, the, the question I'm looking at today is called the problem of evil. And it's framed in different ways. Essentially, the question is, how can a good God let bad things happen? How can a good God let bad things happen? And another way, maybe a more, more a fuller way, more complete way of, of saying it, how can a God who, who is all-powerful, and all-loving allow human suffering in the world? Why wouldn't a God that that is all-powerful and all-loving stop human suffering completely? Why is there evil in this world? Why why do bad things happen? As Christians, we we can't avoid this question. We can't. We we come face-to-face with it. Uh, we, uh, We can try to to accept sort of simplistic answers. We, we, it's not all bad to, to just say, I don't understand it, but I still believe in God. I don't think that that's a completely wrong, wrong take to, for Christians to have. But if we're willing to muddle into hard questions like, why does a good God let bad things happen? I think we begin to open up conversations that grow our faith. I, I realize we have kids here today and so I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to muddle things up for some parents this morning, I'm sure. And I'm sure that there's going to be some questions uh, for parents. I want to just offer myself as a, a resource anytime that kids have questions. But I, I know as parents, you are equipped to, to talk to your kids about how you handle bad things that happen in this world with a, when we worship a good God, a God who loves us, and how could these things happen as Christians, we, we inevitably face tragedy, and, and we shouldn't be willing to turn our back on it. In fact, when, when believers are faced with difficulty and with evil, it's incredible that we end up becoming like the most rational and the most hope-filled people in the room often. Uh, 
when, when tragedy strikes our earth, it, believers tend to, to step up and to demonstrate our faith in, in the face of, of evil in incredible ways. We, we look at global tragedies, though, as, as believers, and we ache, right? We can't look at the news these days without, without frustration and anger and, and being upset without our hearts being broken by, by the ravages of war, the evils of war that are creating refugees and orphans and childless parents. We, we should be stirred by those things. Those things should cause our hearts to break. And then there are the ravishes of famine and drought, and there's the terror of earthquakes and hurricanes. These, these things that seem to indiscriminately kill, I would say indiscriminately, but somehow they end up affecting the poor more than they affect us who are able to resource ourselves to protect ourselves. And, and so that might bother us even more if we believe that God is the defender of the poor, the God who looks out for, for those who are oppressed and on the margin. And, and large-scale tragedy like that, it shocks us. It hurts us. It, it causes us to, to be, it causes our minds to kind of turn inside out. But all of those large-scale tragedies point to individual tragedies. And as, as human beings on the face of the earth, we are not immune to individual tragedy striking us. If, if we live long enough, we are going to come face to face with untimely and unjust death. It's just a matter, a matter of life. We are going to be faced with injury and sickness that rob us from the joy of life. We, we are going to have hurts as the consequences of sin, ours and other people's, that seem like they will never heal. And these situations, they make us ask, where are you, God? Why, God, are you allowing this to happen? Why don't you protect me from this, God? And my hope in, in asking the question today, my hope in, in being here with, with this question for us is to, to, to just say that there, there, is no, there is no doubt and no question in our faith that is out of bounds for us as a community. This is not a topic that many preachers are rushing to, to address um, because it's a, hard, it's a hard topic. I don't I don't know why I find myself doing this, but like I just I think we gotta talk about the things that that cause our hearts to question. And I think that it's fair. It's fair as a community of believers to admit this is a hard question. We wanna we don't want to avoid hard questions as believers. It's also I I think for us as believers to be loving in our community. This is where our theology and our, our knowledge about God meets most closely with our ability to love others. And, and so we, we must understand how to respond when others are going through tragedy, when evil strikes in the lives of other people, to, to respond in love and to be ready to, to respond as a Christian but I am a little leery. I'm a little, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm a little worried about talking about this. I'm worried that I could start a crisis of faith for somebody because I don't have a great answer. Like, I'm going to leave you unsatisfied today. That's all. That's the way it is. You are going to be dissatisfied by the end of this sermon. 
And I don't want to spark for anybody like that thing that that pushes you over the edge. You know, I'm I just I worry about it. I worry that that these questions that don't have great answers could could cause problems. And again, I offer myself as as somebody to listen. But you're you're not. If I can't satisfy you today, I'm probably not going to be able to satisfy you with my answers. So I'm just going to muddle through some of the reasons that maybe people would would believe that God could still be good and and loving and powerful, and still there could be could be evil in this world. And there's a whole class of answers that are just sort of dissatisfying, but they're classic answers. They're answers that we see over and over again in Christian faith, in, in the church, in, in our traditions. And so I'm going to address a few of the unsatisfactory answers uh, right up to, to begin with. The, the first unsatisfactory answer, there's a lot to choose from, by the way. The first unsatisfactory answer is, is to say that God cannot stop evil. To, to say that there, there is something about God that we don't understand that is different than maybe we... we Think about God that says that God cannot stop evil. And one of the maybe more compelling ideas behind God not being able to stop evil would be to say that God is bound by time just like you and I are. That God is, is stuck with the limitations of time. So God, God is present everywhere, but God is only present in the moment right now. And, and God can't go back and change the past, just like we can't go back and change the past. God is all-powerful in the present, but can't, can't manipulate the future. He can only manipulate the right now. God can only, only act in the right now. And, and so, God, can't, uh, God, God knows all of the possible outcomes, but doesn't know for sure all of the choices that humans will make. Humans can make choices in an instant that God allows. God, God doesn't, doesn't stop or cannot stop because God is not able to, to stop in, in something that has passed. That's not super satisfying to me. Uh, there's some, there's a, a class of, of ideas like this that say that God is, is working in, in creation, sort of alongside creation to bring about God's purposes, but, but is limited by time in, in doing that. Another explanation is, is that God is simply unable to stop, stop evil because God isn't strong enough to stop evil. That, that we, we just don't take seriously the, the pressure and strength of evil in this world. Or it could be that God just can't manipulate creation and, and people the way that we think God could. Maybe God just is, is not as, as powerful as we think. And there's, there's some scripture that maybe could... could back a person up on this. There's the idea that the enemy of our soul is very strong, that, that Satan is very strong. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we read, Satan, who is the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. So Jesus refers to Satan as the one who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He is, he is powerful in this world. He calls him the, the Lord of this world, the ruler of this age. And so maybe Satan is just so powerful that God can't combat Satan in every moment. And what a great trick of the enemy of our souls it would be if, if 
he could make us miserable right here in this life and then convince us that it's God's fault that we're miserable in this life, right? Wouldn't that be a great way of the enemy of our souls to, to sort of trick us if, if God isn't powerful enough to, to stop evil at every turn to, for, for Satan to say, well, if God was really all-powerful and God really loved you. Um, so that's, that's a possibility. There's, there's a whole category of solutions, though, that, that say God cannot stop evil for whatever reason. There's also a list of reasons that people think maybe just God, God won't. God will not. God chooses not to stop evil. Uh, so we keep God as being all-powerful in, in this instance, but maybe, maybe good is, is different when it's applied to God than it is to us. Like, we're finite, right? How could we judge an infinite God? And so maybe, maybe when God acts in a good way, it's just different than, than the way we see it, and we experience it sometimes as tragedy. Maybe we just don't realize that that God is acting in a good way when, when it seems like a bad way to us, when it seems like bad things are happening around us. Maybe that's really just God doing something good that, that we can't see. Another way of applying good and evil differently to God is to say that God, God uses evil, God uses bad things in our lives for his purposes in this world. And and as Christians, sometimes we're quick to rush to, to saying, oh, God's going to use this. We're quick to apply Romans 8, 28. You know, God uh, works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, there's a time and a place for Romans 8, 28. But in the moment of suffering, it's, it's not particularly helpful. Uh, it's not really a, a kind of pat answer that we come, come up with as believers can, can be really un, unhelpful. And it's true, it's true, it's very true that God can bring good out of the bleakest of situations in our lives. Um, but couldn't God bring good out of our lives without evil too? <laughs> couldn't, couldn't God like work in us without us having to go through sickness, without us having to lose loved ones, uh, without us having to, to endure hardships of all kinds. It sure seems that way. Like, right, Adam and Eve, like, perfectly experiencing the human condition with no suffering. Uh, so it's, it's theoretically possible, so why would God do that? I don't know. Maybe it's that God has just some self-imposed limitations, though. Like, maybe God is just, like, limiting, limiting himself. Romans 1 is, is a passage that kind of points to this idea that God just doesn't, doesn't stop humans from experiencing suffering. God just, like, chooses not to, um, either out of anger or out of desire for people to repent. And so in, in Romans 1.18, we read, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God's anger might be expressed at, at humans by death and tragedy and suffering. Christians, at times, we, we can be kind of unhelpful again in, in saying that like natural disasters fall on places that aren't right here in our hometown because those people are so wicked. You know, it's, it's really easy to say, 
yeah, that hurricane struck over there because those people are so wicked. Um, especially here in the Northwest where we don't have many natural disasters. It's really easy to, to say that, right? Uh, I don't know that, that that's necessarily true. There is some scripture, like the Old Testament has a couple of points at which God partners with creation to judge people. Uh, number 16 is a spot where Korah is a leader among the Jew, uh, among Israel, the, the children of Israel, leads a rebellion against Moses, and, and God uses the earth to swallow them up, right? There's just like a sinkhole in it, swallows them up, and there's their stuff and their families too. Or there's Noah, or sorry, Moses is a, <laughs> Jonah, jeez, <laughs> ah. Jonah is another example uh, Jonah takes a, a boat to Tarshish when he should have been going to Nineveh, and Jonah says the storm is, is building because I'm going the wrong way. God is using this storm to turn me back. Jesus isn't really fond of people trying to attribute the sins of people to their untimely demise. Um, Luke chapter 13 tells two stories. Jesus talks about two incidences, one where Pilate comes and kills a bunch of people who are sacrificing, and then another where a tower in Jerusalem just fell on some people and killed them. And Jesus says that didn't happen because they were the worst sinners in the world. Sorry. Did, did you think that was why that happened? That is not why that happened. And, and so uh, our, Jesus isn't, isn't necessarily a fan of just saying, well, anything, that ba anything bad that happens to somebody is because that person's obviously a sinner. Jesus sort of debunks that notion. But there is the idea that suffering and, and evil is a punishment for, for sin. Um, we, we see it in the New Testament, the idea that God, God lets us experience the consequences of our sin. Romans 1, again, verse, eight, verse 28 says, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolishness, thinking, foolish thinking, and let them do things that should never have been done. Uh, it, it seems possible that God allows us to experience the consequences of our sin. Like that seems pretty, pretty biblical. Um, and and honestly, when I come to an answer, it's not far from from the notion of God allowing us to experience the consequences of our sin. But it it's, doesn't account for the suffering of innocent people, right? Uh, saying that it's the consequence of sin, it doesn't account for, for natural disasters that, that, like the rain, fall on the good and the wicked. Uh, these things happen for, for everybody. And so it's not fully satisfactory to say that all the bad things that happen in this world our punishment of sin. There might be reasons that God cannot stop bad things. There might be, in, in spite of being good, and there might be some reasons that God would not stop uh, bad things from happening. Uh, and all of these, all of these possible solutions to to the problem of evil, they come up with with our understanding of God from Scripture, and they all kind of fall short. When, when we read about God in, in Scripture, we, we read about a God who is all-powerful and a God who is all-loving and a God who, 
for whom nothing is impossible. And, and so all of these answers that try to limit God in some way, to, ch- to take away his power or to take away his love, they end up being just a little hard to square with the God we've worshipped this morning, with the God that we understand as, as we read Scripture. So um, there's another way. There's another way that maybe we could talk about evil that, that would help us. And this is another classic way that the church has thought about evil, and, and that is to make evil less, to make it, to make it less than, than what we see around us. A very Christian-sounding argument would, would be using Paul, the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He's talking about the, the suffering that he has endured in life. And in verses 16 through 18, he says, That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. So what Paul is saying here is that heaven is this eternal, infinite reward. And, and the math checks out. Like the math checks out if you say an infinite, eternal reward will pay you back several times over for the limited amount of suffering that you could experience on this, this world, right? The math checks out like that. The, the infinite good, the infinite reward of heaven is weightier than, than the light and momentary trials Paul talks about in, in 2 Corinthians. And, and so that's, a, that's an answer, but it's an incomplete answer because we know that not everybody, according to Scripture, is going to experience that eternal and infinite reward. And, and so why would God allow that, that to happen for some people. You could press this argument a little bit further. You could press this a, a little bit further and say, well, now we live in this such this limited, finite world compared to, to real existence, which is eternal existence. Like, what we suffer now, it's just an illusion. It's like barely anything at all. Uh, the, really, what we're experiencing now, when we get to our eternal reward, we'll look back and we'll say, oh, that was that didn't even exist. It was so, it was so small. And you, and you could say even that some people try to say if we, if we become so, so wrapped up in God's presence, the problem of pain and, and suffering in this world, it just goes away completely. Uh, again, it doesn't, it doesn't work very well for, for those who aren't so heavenly minded. And, and it doesn't help us when, when we deal with people who are currently suffering from untimely death. Uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't help when, when we see people dealing, dealing with, with sickness. Um, and another, another way that people talk about 
evil as, as, or kind of try to minimize evil, would be to just say, well, look at how much good there is in the world and how much evil there is in the world. Surely the good outweighs the bad. Every time a crisis hits, there's good people that show up, and, and we see an outpouring of, of incredible love and kindness from people. Surely, surely that goodness is always outweighing, outweighing the good. Um, and another kind of related, related idea would be that if, if we're going to be able to see what is good, we also have to know what is evil, right? We have to know, know what's bad. And, and so we need the, like, good almost requires the contrast of, of evil. And it can't, can't be denied that, that evil is often opposed by good. Like, often we do see good in the face, in the face of evil. But if we're making an argument based on quantity, can I just ask for a little bit less? Can I just line up and be the first person to say, like, we could understand evil without, or we could understand good with a little less evil in the world? Like, I, we could understand health with a little less sickness, right? We could be grateful. I, uh, if, if you want to paint, like, big pictures, you know, broad, extreme examples, like, we could understand the depth of depravity of the human heart with a Holocaust that was, like, a quarter of the size, Right? We, we could understand, like, it doesn't seem necessary to have quite as much evil if it's only here for us to understand what is good. And, and so, uh, I, it, it seems like we have a little bit of an excess problem of evil here if it's only here for the sake of contrast. So there are, there are these different classes of, of arguments. There's the idea that limit God some way, say God can't or God won't because of whatever reason. There's the, the ideas that try to limit evil to say it's really not that bad, it's really small in comparison to how good, good things are. And, and some of them are like a little hopeful, but none of them really, really satisfy. None of them really, really bring us to, to a conclusion that we want to end with. And I, I can't give you a conclusion that we're going to want to end with. I mean, I'm, I'm just not going to today, unfortunately. But let me just share with you a little bit about what I think about this problem and what I think about God personally. And, and I'm going to tell you, it's incomplete. I, I don't have a complete, good, lock-tight, lock watertight, solid answer for this, but let me tell you how I wrap my mind around this and continue to be a Christian in the face of, of difficulty. And the, first, the first place I go to is to, to understand that God has a preference for human free will over, over us not being free. Um, God, God allows evil because God prefers to have free will. Uh, God, God could program us to never do evil, right? That is w well within God's ability if we understand God to be all-powerful. God could have created us like ro robots that run a program where we never hurt one another, we never sin against people, we never sin against God. God could have created us to just be like perfect people and we could live in a utopia and wouldn't it be great? But our experience makes us believe that God gives us free choice. You chose to come here this morning. You're questioning it now, I understand. 
But you chose to come here this morning. You, you, you choose the direction of your life. You choose career. You choose people in your life. You, you feel like, at least, you have choice. You have choice in the matter. Scripture appears to, to point to the reality that people have choice. We are not robots just doing what God has programmed us to do from our birth. And the, the reason I think this is important to God is because love requires choice. And God wants lovers. When Jesus summarizes the law, the Old Testament law, the requirements of, of God's people, he summarizes it by saying, love God with all of your being and love other people as yourself. When we fulfill those commands, we are living the way that God intends us to live. But love, love for God and love for other people, they require us to, to choose to love. Love must be chosen in order for it to be authentic. You could make, imagine if you could make somebody love you. If you had a little bottle of love potion number nine and you sneak it into somebody's food and and then, sorry, Julie, I can, it's, it's going to stick. Um, <laughs> uh, you have a little, little magic pill you can give somebody. And, and they, from then on, they love you perfectly with a full being love. They love you with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they could never stop loving you doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter, doesn't matter anything about you, they are going to love you because they have been programmed to love you from, from then on. The, the question I have then is, is that authentic love? Is that real love? If somebody is just like programmed, it's not a choice anymore, they don't have the opportunity to, to stop loving you, they just love you. Because I believe that the mystery and beauty of love is that it's chosen, right? The, the real romance of love that lasts beyond the first fight is that it's chosen. The real, the real beauty and heart of love that cares for aging parents, it's chosen. Parental love, like there's a lot of, of like emotions and, and hormones in that, right? But sometimes, even as parents... We love because we're choosing to love. Real love isn't programmed. It's not a program running on a computer. Real love decides to love, and it has the opportunity to change its mind, but real love doesn't change its mind. God, God wants lovers and not robots. And for lovers of God to not also be robots, we have to be able to choose love we have to be able to choose not to love. If love is going to be authentic, it, it must be chosen. I think God prefers human people with the potential for evil to slaves who love God because he's programmed us to love him. In fact, I, I think that a, a God who makes robots to love him isn't the God revealed in scriptures. And then when you take the, the reverse side of that, when, when you say that there is a God who has programmed certain people who will never love him, 
So that would be the, the natural corollary. If some people are programmed to love God and they can't choose otherwise, that means that God has programmed other people to not love him. And they can't choose otherwise. And I don't think you find that God revealed in Scripture. I think, I think you have to do a lot of tricks in your mind to get to a God who is worthy of love and a God who programs people to damnation. Still, even evil seems like a high price to pay, right? Pain of, of losing loved ones to untimely death, the frustration and anger of cancer, the, the evils of war, the heartbreak and fear that is brought on by natural disasters, they seem like a high price to pay. And I'll admit, I don't have a good answer as to why all of those things in nature seem like so against us sometimes. I, I don't, I, I can't make a correlation between a hurricane and God's wanting lovers who aren't programmed. I, I don't see it. If you can do the math and show me, I'd love to see it, but I don't have a good answer for that. And so we, we're still kind of stuck in, in some of this. As Christians, I, I think the next place I go then is, is that we have Jesus. We have Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, I made reference to John chapter 11. It's the story of Jesus arriving at Mary and Martha's house just too late, uh, just too late because their brother Lazarus has died of a sickness a few days before, four days before at least. Um, and, and when Jesus showed up at the village, he, he meets Martha on the outskirts of town, and he tells Martha, look, Lazarus is going to rise from the dead. Don't worry about it. And Martha kind of thinks that Jesus is making this big spiritual statement about the future and heaven and all that, and, and kind of goes on. And, and then Mary comes out and, and starts talking to, to Jesus. And I'm going to pick up the story for us in John chapter 11, verse 32. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him. And he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, come, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. So Jesus has already prophesied, already told Martha that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus isn't weeping because he's missing Lazarus. He's not weeping over the death of Lazarus. So why, why does he weep? John emphasizes Jesus' anger. He mentions it here uh, in, in verse 33, and then he mentions it again in verse 38. Jesus is angry in this moment. I, I think this is, a, this is a time when we see Jesus fully living the human experience of suffering and pain. Looking at these people he loves, 
who have lost their dear brother. This young man that they had so much hope for in life died way too young, should not be in the grave right now. And here they are having a funeral and spending days weeping over the loss of their brother. Jesus looks at this situation, and, and I believe that Jesus weeping is a response of, of that frustration and hurt that we feel. When, when we just, we can't respond with words, when, when we have cried to the point when we don't have any tears left to cry. This is Jesus, God in the flesh, experiencing it for himself right here in, on earth in the moment. Jesus clearly shows that he understands human pain and suffering. I, I think this is an incredible strength of Christianity. We can't explain why suffering happens. We can't explain the untimely deaths of, of our loved ones. We can know that our God has entered into the human experience and fully knows what we feel in our moments of loss and pain. Jesus fully lived the human experience. Our God knows what it is to hurt. Our God knows what it is to have no words to describe the emotions running through him. Our God knows what it is to weep. And out of the same, the same body that wept with us came the words, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Our God has promised to always be with us. I think we have all the more reason to believe that Jesus never wants to abandon us because he's been through it. He's lived it. He is not going to leave you weeping without comfort. He is not going to abandon you and leave you alone. Jesus meant it when he said, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age, because he had been through the depths of the pain of human life. This is why I think it's worth being a Christian when we can't explain why bad things happen to good people, why a good God would let bad things happen. This is, this is why I think it's worth holding on to our faith. Because we have a Savior who, who knows, who can, who can relate to our hurt, and who is with us. So we're going to celebrate communion. Doesn't it feel like, don't you feel like throwing a party and celebrating, having a, a feast after a sermon like that? We're, gonna, we're going to celebrate communion today. We're going to celebrate communion because it's the first Sunday of the month and that's our tradition. We're going to celebrate communion because it, it's a reminder of the suffering and death of Jesus. 
It's a reminder that he was right here on earth with us, walking around, entering into our mess so that he could redeem our mess. It's a, it's a reminder that Jesus has over, overcome evil and that someday we will experience the reward of his overcoming evil. So let me remind you that communion, this supper, this meal, it's instituted by Jesus himself. It proclaims his life, his sufferings, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, and the hope of his coming again. It shows forth his death until his return. This is a means of grace. Jesus is present by the power of his spirit in it. And it's to be received by people with reverent appreciation and, and gratefulness for, for the work of Christ. So we invite everybody who's truly repentant, forsaking your sins, believing in Christ for salvation, to come and participate in the death and resurrection of Christ. We come to the table so that we could be renewed in life and in salvation, and that we could be made one, one in the Spirit. And with the, with the whole church, we, we remember what our faith is. Our, our faith is confessed best in, in this simple confession that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So let's pray. Our holy God, we gather at this your table in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is by your Spirit anointed to preach good news to the poor, proclaim, proclaim release to the captives, Set at liberty those who are oppressed. Christ healed the sick, fed the hungry, ate with sinners, and established the new covenant for our forgiveness of sins. We live in the hope of his coming again. Lord, we also survive by the reality of his presence in our lives. Today we symbolically take the presence of Jesus into us, eating this wafer that will, will be his body for us and drinking this cup that will be his blood for us. We, we thank you, God, because it is, it is this physical reminder that Jesus has never forsaken us. It's this physical, tangible reminder that Jesus suffered the depth of the human experience. Not only did he walk with Mary and Martha through their suffering, he went to the cross. He actually died. His own body felt pain and God, we, we can barely wrap our minds around that. We thank you. We thank you for, for the presence of Jesus that gives us hope. In bleak circumstances, gives us hope. Thank you for joining us on the First NAS Podcast. We look forward to seeing you in person at 1700 8th Street in Lewiston. Come join us.